I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, number 451, Expressive Language Milestones by 12 Months, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest online provider of ASHA-approved early intervention courses for professionals. So today, I want to welcome you to this second show in our new podcast series, the Language Milestones podcast series. And as I said in the kickoff show, number 450, we've never done this topic before, even as we begin our 15th season of the podcast. So I'm so excited about being able to share this information with you. We're going to be looking at language milestones, and that's both the receptive piece or what a child understands, as well as the expressive piece, what a child says. We're looking at all of the milestones from right at about 12 months or actually under 12 months, all the way through 48 months. So I know this information will be so helpful for you as a pediatric speech language pathologist. This is great uh, reference material to realize how typical language development unfolds. It's also a great roadmap for us to use when we're looking at uh, the little friends that we have on our caseloads with how we can help them with what the next little rung of milestones should be or our next little set of goals. And it's a wonderful set of uh, information for us to use for parent education. And so I hope that you will consider purchasing uh, CE credit if you're a therapist and need that credit. I know I know you're always looking for your opportunities to do that, but even if you're a parent or a grandparent, this will be fantastic information for you to use, again, as you work with the child that you love who has a speech-language delay. So we're going to be covering loads of material in each course, and so again, let's just get rolling with this. But if you ha- let me ask you this. If you haven't already, would you please subscribe to our channel? It really helps, and we so appreciate it. All right, so today we're looking at this first age range by 12 months, and at 450, we started looking at receptive language, but today we're looking at the expressive language piece. And as you'll remember, expressive language is what a child can express or what he can say, and we typically think about that with words, but as we'll be talking about today, it also involves the other nonverbal ways that we have of learning to communicate, and those things that we learn even before we're able to use words, we actually continue to use that nonverbal communication through the rest of our lives. I'm doing it now. I'm using my hands as I talk. I'm using facial expressions as I talk. Our body language plays a big plays a big role in communicating, and that's what happens just before children begin to acquire words. And that's an exciting thing that we're going to talk about today as we look at these skills for children who are <clears throat> just under 12 months or right at that 12 month level. Actually, these skills can also be applied even to a child who's not verbal or not using words as their primary way to communicate. So if a child is using an AAC system, and AAC stands for Augmentative Alternative Communication, and that would be anything um, instead of using words. So a picture system, sign language is AAC, or another kind of device that a child uses, whether it's, uh, again, it could be something, a speech generating device, as simple as just a little button that he pushes, or something that he uses on a tablet to a full system that's specifically designed for that. But we can take the expressive language skills and also use, or expressive language milestones, and also use those with our little friends who are on our caseloads who are AAC users as well. All right, so let me give you some more information about expressive language before we start to look at the skills that we're going to be talking about today. Expressive language is highly dependent on a child's receptive language, and that's because children understand words 
before they begin to use those words meaningfully as they learn how to talk and even as they learn how to gesture. That receptive language piece has to be there initially. And so one of the things that we said in show 450 is that anytime a child has an expressive language issue, as speech-language pathologists, we always default to looking at the receptive piece first because that's how closely they're connected. You can't talk about what you don't understand. <laughs> or when you do, it's obvious, right, as an adult when an adult is sort of trying to do that and you, you kind of get my play on on that here but it's so true with children just from a concrete perspective and we do have little friends who are echolalic who seem to repeat things or use a lot of language that they don't really really comprehend but for the most part children and and that would make it atypical so for typical language use children understand words before they can say words and so Expressive language is highly dependent upon a child's receptive language abilities. And so we want to make sure that we always keep that in mind. So anytime that a child has difficulty understanding language, we know that he's going to have difficulty using language as well. The problem is parents can recognize pretty easily when a child isn't using words. They say she's at her first birthday or she's 18 months old or oh my goodness she's two and she's still not talking and that is something that parents and everybody can easily see but the receptive language issues are often more subtle and so we have to really always again <clears throat> Be cognizant of that as early intervention professionals and really share that information uh, with parents because anytime there's a receptive language problem, there's going to be an expressive language problem too. And on the, uh, you can have children who have expressive language issues and who understand language just fine. And that's what happens a lot is parents just assume that their child falls into that category, that they're simply a late talker when there's much more going on developmentally. And so we need to always be careful to sort that out. And we'll continue to talk about that throughout this series. But let's go ahead right now at the beginning of the show and take a look at the skills that we'll talk about as we move through the rest of this course. And I'll be sharing strategies and my best tips and tricks for helping a child attain these milestones. But first, let's just take a look at what these milestones are. Perhaps you may be a parent who's just tuning in that's just... Uh, uh, stumbled upon our channel on YouTube and so you want to really check to see how your child is doing so let's just take a look at that now we'll be putting expressive language skills by 12 months here on the screen so that we can talk about that the first skill on our list here is vocalizes with different sounds for different reasons what does that mean that means that a child says lots of different sounds for several different purposes and so I don't want to get too much into this now I really just want to read the skill list and talk about it but uh, we'll be looking at, again, the variety here, not only the variety in the kinds of uh, word approximations that we hear, but also the variety in how a child uses the word approximations that he or she uh, has learned. The second skill here is uses gestures functionally, and that means that they understand what it means to point and that they are telling you, I want that or go get that for me. They understand that when they're waving that they're actually saying goodbye to someone, and they start to use these gestures on their own to convey their own little messages and gestures are so important and I have lots of information to share about that but that's the second skill here with expressive language milestones by 12 months we want a child using gestures purposefully and meaningfully the third 
skill that we're looking at here is that a child by their first birthdays will say mama or dada meaningfully and that's such a special milestone for parents to hear that's something they waited uh, to hear the whole time they were expecting that beautiful baby and certainly maybe even before that as as uh, a mom or a dad or a parent or a husband and wife dreamed of being a parent and so again it's such an important milestone and it does come in by about one and so when we have little guys on our caseload that are older than that, that should be one of our first goals. The fourth skill that we want to talk about here, the fourth milestone, is imitates play sounds and other consonant vowel combinations. And so here's where imitation comes in. And imitation is so important because it's how all of us learn everything. As we become adults, we may learn by reading, but usually it's by watching or looking at something that's that we want to know how to do, that sequence or that new concept or new skill. We watch somebody else do it and then we repeat it. You're actually probably doing that here right now if you're watching on YouTube or even if you're listening uh, to the podcast uh, on your phone. You want to hear the things that someone else is telling you, how they do it or what they've done that's been successful, and then you want to copy that. So again, imitation is a skill that, that we use throughout our lifetimes, and it's something that we have to help children learn how to do when that's not coming naturally. And so here, I don't want you to think about that what comes after the word imitation I just want you to think about imitation because that's how important that is and certainly we want to see that happening by 12 months because this is a show about language development we will talk about those first little things that come in and we'll spend a lot of time talking about that whole hierarchy as a child learns how to imitate but the particular milestone here is that children will imitate play sounds and that would be things like sound effects things like animal sounds or vehicle noises or or uh, if they hear a cell phone ring, they try to imitate that. Any little play sound and uh, a little, again, just something that they've heard that's not really a word. And we also include those little early words that are exclamatory words like uh-oh and wow and we and those kinds of words come into play here too. Plus other consonant vowel combinations. So other kinds of early word approximations. Children will hear you say a word and then they try to imitate it and so that comes in again before a child or right around the time a child turns 12 months the next uh, milestone is just that next little jump up which is begins to imitate familiar words so again now their imitations sound more word like so that when mama says milk they try to say me or ma or Eh, or whatever variation they have, but mom knows that her child tried to imitate that word that she says over and over and over. And that familiarity is such an important part of that. Children probably don't imitate words that they don't hear as frequently. And that's, again, because we've uh, helped their little systems begin to learn what that word means. And they've heard it enough that they want to, and they understand it well enough that they want to try to say it well, say it too. And so that's what happens here as children begin to imitate familiar words and they move more and more toward using language and again learning how to communicate again with our verbal system. And then the last milestone here at uh, by 12 months that we want to see with expressive language is that children actually begin to use one or two words on their own so completely spontaneously so they don't have to hear it immediately before or within the few seconds or minute before they start to be able to hold that little picture of 
what they want to say in their minds, and then they actually say it. So it's such an exciting milestone that happens right around the time that a child reaches his or her first birthday. All right, so those are the milestones that we'll be talking about through the rest of the show today so that I'll uh, teach you my best ways for uh, helping children attain these milestones. So let's talk about, before we get going with that, the age ranges that we're using for this entire podcast series. For this series, we're going to be using milestones with those time-tested, traditional uh, age ranges associated with them. We are not going to be using any of the newer screening milestones that were released in early uh, 2022 that caused such an uh, upheaval in our world of early intervention when this organization published those numbers without really consulting anyone who was a speech language expert uh, on that panel. And the problem with that isn't that SLPs were left out of that discussion. The problem is that the results of that are actually going to be contraindicated probably to the, in, the, the published intent of what those guidelines were supposed to do. They're supposed to help parents really know when there's an issue with their child and get uh, services started and provide intervention if children uh, rise to the level of that where they their milestones are, are well below or if their skills are well below what the milestones are for a particular skill. However, um, uh, there's a step that kind of comes before that, which is called surveillance, where we're going to monitor children and really keep an eye on them and really really help uh, differentiate children who are just at that naturally slower pace of development, which is absolutely fine, versus children who are really, really atypical. And with the release of those milestones that were so controversial, I think that we're actually going to miss more children because the the age ranges were way, way, way uh, too low for those things. And so, or, to, or however you want to look at it, maybe you could even think about it as too high. So saying that you don't have to worry about a child's language development until they have three words by 30 months, that's way off. We're down here at the 12-month level talking about when typically developing children begin to acquire words. And so we would still have that 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 whole year and a half later that that didn't happen until a child turns two and a half. So there's a big discrepancy here. So we're not going to do that. We're going to use the time-tested traditional evidence-based milestones. And when I pulled these milestones together, I actually did this for my therapy manual, which is a great uh, resource if you are a pediatric speech-language pathologist or another professional who works with uh, children with communication issues, or if you're a parent, with, uh, parenting your own child and working with your child at home, this manual walks you through all the information that we're covering in this series with uh, a child's language skills. And so I pulled this together using both normed and criterion reference test, and then sort of looked at what uh, indicators or what skills were present on all of those tools and those are the things that I wanted to use because I wanted it to be really really consistent and kind of build a consensus so that we could trust this information. So um, I used the Rosetti, the Carolina, the Help, the PLS4 and the Bailey scales and checked then other popular resources and references that uh, parents have come to rely on like the what to expect when you're expecting series so your baby's first year and then the toddler years and again look for 
for consensus for those. So that's what we're going to be using as our basis for uh, the milestone age ranges that we're looking at. For kids with known language issues, so we know that they're not going to meet uh, the milestones with these age ranges, and sometimes therapists get upset when we use age ranges, and sometimes programs try to discourage us from doing that because they say that that's upsetting for their parent, for parents to see that their child is a year and a half or two years or six months or whatever behind. I get it, but if we don't really provide information that's reality-based, <laughs> we end up with parents thinking, again, not really understanding where their child is, so is falling along that continuum. And again, this is not to hurt a parent's feelings or continually uh, tug at their heartstrings and, and you know get their emotions going. It's just to provide uh, accuracy with how their child is functioning, which is what they want to know in the first place, all right? So uh, it's certainly going to be something that you can use in your practice and even even uh, it's well known that therapists and well established that we use our milestones and, and this is what we base our therapy programs on and it's designed to do this because we need to look at these skills kind of collectively with these are all the things that should be happening at one time so that when we are determining therapy goals we don't pick and choose from goals you know this this little guy with expressive language I'm going to pick a goal that's in the 12 month level and the 18 month level and the 24 month level it doesn't work like that it's very very sequential and so again when we think about using these skills kind of as a little a little collection of what what we should be looking at uh, happening in the child. And again, this doesn't matter if he has a language delay. If this is happening for him at 18 months or 20 months or you know, 27 months, these are the kinds of things that we should be looking at all at once. All right, so back to your handout, and this is where we're going to be walking through the skills, and uh, we have the skill here on the right for just a quick check, and then we have the strategies that we're going to be discussing all on the left side. And again, if you are a parent and a grandparent or another kind of professional, and you're watching these shows and you're benefiting from these shows, uh, this is a great way to support our work by, by purchasing the handout. And so you can find uh, the link for that as well as the CE credit here below uh, in the post on YouTube. And it's so important because it makes it possible when you support our work like that, we can keep these things going uh, and it's, it makes it possible for parents who can't afford that. So we certainly, certainly appreciate that. All right, so let's get to the first skill today. Vocalizes with different sounds for different reasons. And as we talked about with the receptive language show, uh, we're not including all the milestones up to 12 months because when we look at milestones, it's sort of understood that if a child can do these things here at 12 months, he's actually been working on all of these things and he's been acquiring little skills even back at three months and then six months and nine months. All of these skills lead up to a child being able to vocalize different sounds for different reasons. And so again, this doesn't just happen on a child's first birthday. This is uh, continuing and building all along a child's first year. So um, vocalizes for different sounds for different reasons. Let's just break this down and talk about all the different components because it's really, really a loaded milestone. So our first word here is what? It's vocalizes. So does a child understand how to intentionally use his voice? So this would mean that that child is vocal. Uh, our colleagues in ABA separate vocalizations 
and verbalizations but SLPs we don't really do that we kind of or when we do we keep it just super super general with verbalizations really are more words and vocalizations are uh, the the sounds that we make that aren't necessarily words and so again the expressive language milestones before this level also uh, again build that variety in there so that's the next thing that we uh, that we want to hear a child vocalizes with different reasons or different purposes Purposes. And parents can usually recognize and differentiate even a baby's crying with different ways that he uses his crying. He could have a, a cry. And again, some of this may is probably reflexive at the beginning, but over time it does become more purposeful or more intentional. So that a child has a different cry when he's hungry versus when he's bored, when he's hurt versus when he's just uh, needing some attention because, uh, you know, again, it's really, uh, really kind of different need and so there are different reasons and babies learn to differentiate their crying that way. Other vocalizations again that aren't crying have lots of variability like laughing, a chuckle versus a squeal when a child is just enraptured by what's going on versus again that whining or that whimpering that they kind of learn to do purposefully and you start to think that's when parents start to think he's manipulating me. (laughs) No he's communicating with you. He's communicating with you in a way that you understand and that you know I need to get over here and give him attention without this full-on cry. He's learned that he can do it in a different way. So certainly uh, lots of variety there, even with how children use their, or learn how to use those vocalizations and again, make them more purposeful and more specifically directed. Now we can also take a look with the vocalizations here with variety and be really, really technical. And we could look at this as a speech language pathologist from an articulation or a pre-articulation phonological development Uh, step here when we start to notice the different specific sounds, specific phonemes that a child is, uh, again, beginning to use in their babbling and in their vocalizations. And so by six to nine months, we know that we want a baby to use four different syllables. We know that we want them to vocalize a two-syllable combination like dada or baba. And again, that's by nine months. So again, when we've gotten up here to the 12-month level, we've actually uh, extended some of this so that when we have a... we know with our milestones that we're not putting them, even though we're looking at kind of what the average age is here, there are going to be children who have done the skill months before. So with that, say that six to nine month level, certainly something that we want to see at that six to nine month level too, is we're marching toward that first birthday is babbling duplicated syllables like ma, 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 or ba, 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 ba. All right. So when we're looking at speech development here, the first speech sounds to develop, and this is according to Dr. Rossetti of uh, the Rossetti Infant Toddler Language Scale. The earliest vocal phase, uh, the vocalizations consist of consonants with a vowel, and so the consonants that we hear most often are lip sounds or our bilabials, primarily our M's, but you can also have a B and a P there. Our nasal sounds, an M is also a nasal sound, so our M's and our N's, and even the ng, because children or babies in this period will also grossly approximate pharyngeal or throaty sounds. And so they uh, primarily are here at the front of their mouth or, or at the back of their mouth. Now, Linguist Systems Guide to Communication Milestones also lists several sources for speech sound acquisition and if you are a speech language pathologist you'll probably recognize this little list so B P M T D N 
K-G-H-W, and then they've added an S and a Y, the Y sound. And so again, we recognize this as what? It's our earliest uh, list of early developing consonant sounds that we primarily expect children to master in words by the time they're three. But look, when experts and researchers say that those come in, those sounds actually come in much, much earlier than that in that baby's first year as they are babbling and again learning to vocalize. And so uh, we kind of looked at consonant sound development there. So let's look at vowel sound development. And again, we're not going to be using phonetic symbols for this show, but let's just kind of keep it at, uh, just let's keep it at a level that our other peers that are not speech language pathologists or the parents who are joining us will understand. Vowels, uh, we can talk about long and short vowels, A-E-I-O-U, and sometimes Y, but there are many more vowel uh, combinations than that or vowel variations than that. We think about as speech language pathologists where vowels are made in our mouth and we also think about front of the mouth, mid mouth, and back of the mouth. Vowels also include vowel combinations that we think about as diphthongs like oi and boy. And let's talk about how important vowel sounds are. Now when I went to graduate school, Back in the, in, or, and even undergrad back in the 80s and early 90s, we didn't talk too much about vowel development, but we know, and, and that's because in typical development, children don't really have difficulty with acquiring vowel sounds. If there's going to, if a child is typically developing and if he's, if, if with language and if he's going to just have a little mild speech problem, we know that those issues and it, uh, will primarily affect his intelligibility because he's substituting or deleting consonants. And so, again, vowels have not gotten as much attention until recently. It's a big, big marker when a, a child isn't using lots of variety with their vowel sounds, and that's when we start to think about speech sound disorders like apraxia. Or if there's a muscular involvement in the child's uh, body, we know that dysarthria could be a problem, and that could also lead uh, to difficulty with speech intelligibility and difficulty at this earliest phase with not producing enough variety with their consonant sounds. And so again, when we start to see these issues come up, not when a child is older, not when they are preschool age, or not even when they're over two and not talking, these issues happen now. These issues happen right when, uh, again, in the in, or, and or can even be spotted in that baby's first year. Now let me say something here. Will we diagnose these kinds of things at 12 months? Will we say, this child has a phonological delay because he or she is not using four different syllables by nine months? No, <laughs> we're not going to do that. And we're not going to treat children for that at this early age. But when we go back and look at their histories, or if we do happen to practice in a program that lets us uh, participate in uh, developmental surveillance where we are monitoring children and not necessarily providing services, those are the kinds of things that we'll notice. And so, again, this is just for your information so that you are aware that these things really do have their roots in infancy. All right, so back to our this milestone. Vocalizes with different sounds for different reasons. That last part, we talked about
about we want a child vocalizing using using his or her voice purposefully we want the different sounds coming in so that sound variability we want different consonants and different vowels and now we're going to look at the pragmatic part or the language use part that's where children vocalize different sounds for different reasons now we talked about it with crying that even back in infancy we could hear that differentiation and that parents can realize that oh there's this is must you know he's got a wet diaper because this is how his cry sounds when he's wet or this is a really big deal I got to get myself into that room real quick I can't just let him linger here while I make a bottle or you know do something else he's he's not fine I've got to get in there children then begin to carry over that intentionality uh, even with sounds and again this is before they get to words but they start to do it here maybe there's an emphatic duh or ma or something that lets a parent know oh you know boy they're mad I can tell right now even you know they're they're not telling me off yet <laughs> but they have such a tone a tone even at right here at 12 months and they're using their voice purposefully for that and so we want to see that communicative intent develop here before a child turns 12 months old. So let's talk about communicative intent. And again, that's a message without words. You get what I'm meaning, even without me supplying the specific vocabulary. You know, and moms and dads can start to read those things in their children. And if you spend any time with a child, you'll start to be able to do that too. Or if you've spent lots of time with lots of children over the years, you start to kind of know these things and start to be able to to read into these things a little bit better and get those messages and interpret that. But what are some other, uh, let's talk about the real specific ways that babies do this. So the first thing that they really do to start to demonstrate communicative intent is with reaching. And so uh, really purposefully saying, I want that. Let's back up a little bit and talk about the three ways. That's what I skipped here. The three ways that babies and toddlers first begin to demonstrate their own communicative intentions. And they do it with affect and we'll talk about what each of these things uh, are in a minute. Affect, gestures, and vocalizations. So affect, gestures, and vocalizations. And let's talk about just some real common things that I started with. Reaching is a way to show intentionality. Turning your head away, the hand where a child is visibly telling you, I reject you, or I reject what you're trying to offer me right now. I do, I'm refusing. I don't want anything to do with that. What about uh, when a baby's looking around and crying? What are they saying? They're saying, somebody, please help me. Or again, any little message, that nonverbal communication that a child would be conveying to us to let us know, I have something to say here. Please pay attention to me. So communicative intentions, and we've learned this, our reference here is Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who uh, did lots and lots of work with children on the autism spectrum. And he was the inventor of floor time, which is a huge huge methodology that we use to treat uh, children with autism. It's a relationship-based approach, uh, and certainly he's taught us a lot about looking at communicative affect and so or communicative intentions and so he says that we do this through affect gestures and vocalizations so what's affect affect is visual demonstration of your feelings so according to dr greenspan we demonstrate affect with our body language and with our facial expressions so we smile when we're happy 
We grimace, you know, a scowl when we're upset or maybe even when we're frustrated. We have a pouty, sad face when something has made us really, really disappointed or sad. And so babies and toddlers do that too, as you know. And so that certainly is the way that we can start to help children begin to express uh, that communicative intent is by really, really using their affect. And we do that through modeling. We'll get to the strategies in a minute, but let's move on with gestures. What's the second part of how children demonstrate communicative intent? They use gestures. So again, what are gestures? These are any kind of nonverbal body movements that we assign specific meaning to, that we know what that means as the sender and that you know what that means or the person who's listening or watching would know what that means as the receiver. And so uh, that would be, you know, pointing, waving, clapping. Those are three of the big ones that we use for children who are here at this 12-month level, but we're going to be looking at lots more of those things. And we want to see these things happen by the time again a child is 12 months and so we put all this together we said that they use affect and gestures and then they begin to use vocalizations and again all different reasons to communicate am I calling you am I responding to you am I asking a question am I labeling something am I expressing displeasure am I squealing because I'm delighted all different tones of voice all different facial expressions and we want to see this by 12 months so what do we do if we're not seeing and again this is a big milestone boy we've talked about this for a long time but it really is the basis for everything else we're going to talk about in this age range how can we get this going so we we address what's missing and so we do what we just did when we walked through that you know is he vocalizing well if he's not vocalizing we've got to get that piece going first is there variety in the vocalizations how do we teach a kid who's who's not making many sounds how do we get that those different kinds of sounds movement is a big thing anytime and and, and really moving a child and getting his little system revved up enough or if he's super busy calm down enough through movement to help him begin to vocalize and begin to use his little voice purposefully um, and again and we're not just focused on words here we're focused on sounds and we look at when is this child more vocal when is she likely to make more noise what kinds of noise do we hear what can I do with movement with changing that with with the variables that I can make a difference with you know if I'm really excited is she more vocal or do I need to pull back and be a little bit more reserved do I need to have her in the bathtub does she get more and more vocal with water play is is it again is it any kind of movement you know not only there in the bathtub with these incoming sensory experiences but is she more vocal when she's when she's on a trampoline or when she's on a swing or even when I'm swinging her in a blanket and so again we manipulate these variables and we're not just listening for words here, because if a child isn't consistently vocalizing, that is a long-term goal. We've got to get the sounds going first. And so, so we look at that, and again, we figure out what piece is missing, and we supply. That is our solution uh, to get all of the rest of the milestones going. For some kids, they might need a medical consult. They're not vocalizing because they don't hear consistently. They've had lots and lots of ear infections that weren't detected or treated, and so we may have to do do some things with some medical pursue some medical uh, consults before we can move on sometimes again there might if a child really isn't vocalizing and there's no uh, known reason for that a child may need an ENT consult just to rule that out let's move on to the affect piece what if a child isn't using a lot of affect what if they are really flat a lot of the time that you don't see much variation or you have to work really hard to get them going and to get them engaged well, you model affect. You start to show a lot of heightened affect. You kind of go so far the other way 
so that a child starts to really notice those things and you start to pull them into communication that way. And so you're real animated. You exaggerate your feelings. And it's not always the fun, woohoo, bubbly feelings, which is which are fantastic, which we talk about all the time here on the show with how, how fun we have to be. But at the same time, you model everything. If you're disappointed, you model that. If you're upset, you model that. And so again, you really, you really wear your feelings out here on your face so that a child can start to see that and react and respond because you know they can't always understand your uh, words here at this point particularly here at 12 months they're starting to understand some things but they really need the visual cues too and so you be sure that you're doing that with your body with your own facial expressions and with your own uh, body language to really uh, demonstrate that and so not just words and so the next piece of that would just be encouraging any kind of vocalization and again I've already mentioned this we don't start with words but we start with easier earlier vocalizations that a child might be able to imitate so the place sounds and we're going to be talking a lot about uh, those kinds of things as we go so just know that those are the kinds of things that you'll need to do you'll need to use less words and more sounds and not more you know more sounds like yay and we or oh no or oh boy those kinds of things those emotionally laden uh, words exclamatory words and so what do we do if a child doesn't seem to demonstrate interest in communicating so you know we don't really see the affect there we don't really see the gestures and vocalizations lots of times is that we need to pick better motivators so we need to increase his reasons or his desire to communicate and so we have to think about what a child likes and we have to think about when we've seen him or her light up those are the kinds of things that we need to use again to teach communication and to help a child learn how to vocalize consistently and so let me just say here when we don't seem to see affect gestures vocalizations when when we don't see that communicative intent developing it could be lots of things it could be again it could be that a child has just a lower uh, level of arousal perhaps there's some kind of diagnosis that uh, as a parent you already know about a medical diagnosis so you might already have that reason but sometimes there will be a developmental diagnosis that comes later like autism but we see it here again even before a child turns 12 months we don't see that eye contact we don't see that joint attention we don't see that affect we don't see them really uh, get excited and light up and Uh, with a person like we do uh, maybe even with an object that they like and so again it's that reciprocity or that engagement piece and that back and forth pieces that are really really missing and so again would we treat these things at 12 months well perhaps if a parent is concerned about autism lots of times the parent will have another child so an older sibling has autism and so sometimes we get those those siblings in treatment earlier because the parents know Uh, sometimes there's a concerned pediatrician if there is a gross motor issue sometimes we'll tack speech therapy on the end of that (laughs) when we anticipate that there will be a problem learning how to communicate because of a known cognitive or intellectual disability that we know that a child will have because of his or her diagnosis but sometimes again we're not treating it at this age and so uh, uh, this is just to talk about it and just to know that you know autism just doesn't happen when a child is 18 months or two these things probably have shown themselves uh, even when a child misses these milestones 
uh, here even at 12 months. All right, so that was our first milestone. Vocalizes with different sounds for different reasons. We talked about a lot of different things within the context of that milestone, and that's okay because it sets the stage for all the one, two, three, four, five other milestones that we'll need to talk about now. The next one is also a really big topic and a big milestone for a child to meet is uses gestures functionally. And so in our introduction, we talked about that that would mean that a child not only knows how to use that little body gesture or that that nonverbal uh, movement that he's doing there, but he also knows what it means. So he's not just imitating the motor part of that, he's assigned meaning to that. So the receptive language skill is developing too. And that's why we said that receptive language is always connected to expressive language. So it doesn't, until the child understands that he's not only imitating you flapping your hand in the wind, he's understanding that you're saying goodbye. And so again, this is so important because this is how children become communicators. They learn how to do it non-verbally first. So in typical language development, gestures are so important because they happen right before a child begins to use meaningful words. And so you'll notice that a lot if you're looking at just a classroom of one-year-old babies in a daycare center. Lots and lots of them have started to, you know, especially if they're over one, they're at that 15, 18-month level, they're starting to use their words even when they're not at home, and so you start to hear those little words. Do you know what all those kids are also doing? They're also the kids that are waving bye-bye. They're also the kids that are pointing. They're also the kids that may be coordinating a gesture or a nonverbal action with a vocalization like, ah, to tell that teacher that I want that or, you know, look at that. And so that's so, so important here. And so that's what we use as speech language pathologists and why we work on gestures because we know because of that continuum of development, that typical acquisition pattern, that that's what happens first. We see those gestures come in before a child learns how to talk. And so let's look at some examples of some gestures that we see around 12 months. And I want to go ahead and put this list up on the screen so that we can talk about them together clapping to demonstrate excitement, pleasure, or approval. So uh, that would mean, and again, usually kids, uh, I haven't said this yet, but typically children imitate these things before they start to do them on their own. Actually, let me back that up. They always imitate these things before they start to do them on their own. And so again, we're not going to see a child just start clapping out of the blue unless he or she has seen someone else do that or heard someone else do that or been exposed to that. And so, again, this is why we talked about gestures back in the receptive language uh, portion of this as well. Are they imitating gestures? Are they copying? And we, we spent a lot of time talking about that in show 450 with how important imitation is. We'll talk about that uh, in two more skills. We'll get to that whole imitation piece. But, again, I wanted to mention that here. So, clapping to demonstrate excitement, pleasure, or approval, or celebration. The second uh, example of a gesture, reaching up to be picked up. And this is the one that we talked about uh, in the receptive language uh, show in 450, where we said, does a child understand when, when you ask her, want up? Has she linked meaning with that? And that's one of the first things that children will understand because it's happened thousands of times and they, they understand it. Their mom has picked them up over and over and over again and she always says one up so they've learned that when they see her hands reaching down like that and when they hear those words one up their response should be what 
I'm going to lift my arms up too. I'm going to respond to that. That's my part of that. And so that's a gesture that we'll see really, really early. What about gimme fingers? A lot of kids use those. Uh, we had three children, uh, two boys and a girl, and our baby girl was the only one who did the gimme fingers. And so, but that's one that you'll see often with children. Uh, shaking their head yes, nodding their head for yes, and then shaking their head no. That's a really, really big one. How about blowing kisses? That's a really sweet gesture that lots of babies learn how to do. So affectionate. I just love it. Uh, waving bye-bye. We've already talked about games like high five or give me five. And again, those are to connect with another person. You might play high five or give me five when you're celebrating an accomplishment. It might be something or even like a fist bump where you're using that to greet or for approval. Uh, we talked about these gestures too, where children can push and uh, a person away or put their hand out and turn away in displeasure. That's a gesture. Pulling an adult or leading an adult toward what he or she wants. Now that's a gesture that lots of children with autism learn. And it's kind of their, their main gesture that they use or their only gesture. And I often caution therapist if that's the only one that you're seeing there's not enough variety we don't want to diminish the importance of that gesture because it's extremely communicative with parents sometimes that's the only way a parent knows what a child who will go on to be diagnosed with autism wants is that they go get that person and they physically lead them there and then sometimes when they get there say into the kitchen they can't really extend the gesture use beyond that they can't really point they can't really use their eyes to look at what they want and then look back at their mom and then look back at what they want so that mom figures out, oh my gosh, he's looking right at the Teddy Grahams. That's what he wants. And so kids with autism sometimes just use that leading. And again, look at that if you're a therapist. If that's a child's only gesture, I look at that really, really closely because that could really tell you that's the only one that he can do. And so uh, that's certainly something that we need to pay attention to. Patting, tapping, or tugging an adult to gain attention. So, you know, like the tap on the shoulder. Kids aren't going to do it like that, but they're going to pull at your pants or 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 tap your leg and parents will notice this if they're involved in something else say they're talking on the phone or talking with their spouse or their other children or perhaps they're even just uh, deeply engaged in something else a kid might have to come up and smack you so that they can get your attention but that's a wonderful gesture it's a non-verbal way of saying hey hey it's my turn pay attention to me all right showing an adult an object is super super important and it always signifies again what joint attention it always lets us know that that child understands that they want you to pay attention to the same thing that they're paying attention to and so when a child brings you an object and is making eye contact with you and then looks back at the object they don't even have to tell you what's wrong you'll, you or, or you you know I've got to figure something out that in some there's something with this that they want me to notice is it that it's exciting and they're just showing me is it broken do they need help opening so again it's an opportunity for a child to be able to engage you and so when children aren't doing that again we expect problems with interaction and engagement and autism is the number one thing that we look at there it could be that some children use gestures kind of uh to entertain you so when they learn little tricks like Ta -da! or even you know if you're a football family when a child does touchdown uh when you're watching the game together that's certainly another example of a gesture 
pointing is the ultimate gesture of all because it's so communicative or communicative however you'd like to say that word it's you telling somebody specifically i want i want to manipulate your behavior with this i i want you to look at that or i want you to reach that for me or that's that's what i'm talking about right there and so pointing is such a fantastic gesture that we want our children learning and using and using well by the time they're 12 months old uh, other little gestures that happen when children get a little bit older you know like where did it go when they're looking around for something uh, you might even start to see a gesture like I don't know or uh, something to you know kind of that shrug you might see that when a child is a little bit older toddler and certainly another gesture like shh you know be quiet so that certainly is one that we all understand so Dr. Amy Weatherby has done lots of research and lots of work with uh, children using gestures at her first words project and her uh, reference that she uses is one that all early intervention therapists should commit to memory. We want children who are typically developing to have, or children who are typically developing have 16 gestures by 16 months. And that's how important nonverbal communication is. And so that's certainly an indicator that that you'll want to commit to memory. So how do we get gestures going when we don't see them typically emerging? Now, I, I've taught entire courses hours on teaching gestures so now we're just going to have to really summarize this information and i'll list those shows uh, in the link below here on youtube but they're also listed on the second page of your handout there with all the related podcasts so if you've purchased the handout you can certainly uh, get the list of shows that way where you could get some more information about teaching gestures but mainly we do that by modeling we have parents increase their own gesture use first next we want a child to imitate the gesture gesture and uh, imitation here is is easy to uh, sure because why because you can make a child's hands <laughs> do the gesture you can't make them talk but you can help them gesture over time you're going to fade those cues so that you're just modeling and the child imitates and so he begins to know that when mama's leaving that he waves bye-bye to her when he hears those words so when we've worked on gestures like that we've had parents increase their own use of gestures you know and we talk we tell them really specific things we talk about saying you know i want you to point a lot i want you to point and say look you know to make sure that your child's attention is redirected i want you to do a lot of clapping i want you to exaggerate when you want to pick her up with your hands out i want you to play give me five with her all the time so that she is responding to you and is using a physical movement to do that not not just with her facial expressions and her attention which is fantastic but that she learns to do her part in that little routine and respond and so again we talk to parents about that and we get that going we say when when she's not doing a lot of gestures help her you know you've got to tell her how to do it you've got to show her how to do it and then lastly you've got to make her do it so take her hand and help her wave bye-bye take her hand and help her learn to blow kisses you know teach her these little tricks because these are all steps on the way to talking if we've done that for a while with the child and they are not near learning even learning how to imitate where they imitate without you using a lot of physical assistance with that we know there's something missing so we know that they may not understand how to imitate 
And so we've got to back up and we've got to teach them to do what comes before they learn usually how to imitate with body movements and body actions. And that's going to be imitating, uh, uh, again, instead of the gestures, we would back it up to earlier, easier body movements that we would imitate. So clapping would be a good one to start with there. But even something like jumping or something like holding your hands up or maybe waving your arms or any kind of big gross motor body movement, we might have them imitate us by running where we start this with running games where we run and we want them to run with us and then then we get to the point where we stomp our feet and they stop to stomp their feet or we uh, kick the ball and they kick the ball and so again those body movements and again when we've added the ball we've actually kind of gone back a step further in development and and we're helping them we're teaching them how to imitate by learning how to imitate actions with objects and so again we're going to talk about this in two more indicators we'll walk through that whole higher of imitation, but I want you to know that here, if a child doesn't seem to be catching on to imitating gestures, we have to maybe back up and teach them how to imitate with easier, earlier things that come first. Now, here's the beauty that I want I want to talk about here with gestures that's particularly for parents of children who you have been trying to teach to use signs like more or please or cookie or whatever sign you're working on and they don't seem to be catching on, you have done it for weeks or months with no success, it's because they're missing something too. They really probably aren't using any kind of gesture. So that's why we as pediatric speech language pathologists don't usually start to teach sign language until we've seen some children use some gestures or until at least they're imitating body movements. So if you are a therapist and you've missed that connection, you know, ding, 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 I want you to get it today. You don't start signs with kids unless you see that they can imitate some other easy body movements and if they are understanding the meaning when they're using gestures. So we don't really start start signing more and all those other kinds of wonderful signs that we teach until we see these other things first. So we would start with clapping and waving and pointing and those easier earlier or hand motions with a song. We would start with those things first and then we would move to sign language. So if that's you, if you're you're a parent and you're really struggling, uh, that's what's happened. you got to back it up so that that child can learn how to imitate and then move forward. And then you'll assign meaning to those gestures. And again, I found that a lot of kids really don't kind of get the uh, language-delayed kids, not typical kids, but language-delayed kids won't get those meaning with the meanings with those early gestures until they're participating in a lot of that other kind of imitation that comes first. So to cap this milestone, if we don't see gestures emerging by 12 months, it is a red flag. And in typically developing toddlers, they usually have several gestures that they're using by 12 months. And then as we said before, 16 gestures by 16 months. And so you've got to do what we said with that first indicator is go back and look at what are the specific things that are missing. If it's a motor issue, treat the motor part. If it's that they can't really wave or use their hands or anything purposefully, you know, that's an OTPT thing. So we've got to get that consult going with that. If it's a language issue, you. Again, kids aren't symbolic yet. We've got to back that up and we've got to make sure that we are teaching uh, receptive language so that they start to make those associations and learn those meanings. If it's a cognitive issue, again, we're going to address that just like the receptive language piece. And if it's a social issue, the child isn't connected enough, isn't engaged enough, we start there with social games. And again, are we doing this for a 12-month-old? Probably not, unless there's an established medical condition or pre-established condition that allows us to treat 
treat them at that early, early age. But these are the same things that we do when a child has that de- those same kinds of delays and issues with gestures at 18 months or 24 months or 30 months or four. You know, whenever you're getting them as a therapist, you know, that's how we work on gestures. The next milestone is a big one. It's saying mama or dada meaningfully. And again, we talked about in the introduction how parents have just waited and waited and waited to hear these words. And they may be waiting a while longer. (laughs) And so we need to work on this as SLPs. And again, is this something, you know, we're looking at the milestone with... Uh, We want kids doing this by 12 months, but when a kid isn't doing this by 24 months, two and a half, three, we've got to work on this. And so the best um, way that I have found to work on this is by uh, playing a game that I call the Mama Game. And I recorded a video on YouTube about this years and years ago. I think it was 2014 or something like that where we teach the mama game. But I just want to talk to you about how to play it here because I think it's so effective. And we talked about it back in show 450 with helping a child understand and be able to identify when somebody says, where's mama? Be able for that child to be able to look and find mom at that point. But here we take it a step further where he starts to say mama. So here's how to play the mama game. You start by putting a child in a contained space so that they are more likely to pay attention and not avoid, escape, or otherwise run away. So put them somewhere like a high chair or in a crib. The second thing that you're going to do is have mom hide. And so if you're in a small space, you may have her just crouch down where the child can't really notice her. If you are, say, uh, in the kitchen, she might sort of get on the other side of the counter. If you're in the bathroom with her and them and you're kind of playing it in this context, she could hide behind the shower curtain or or as I do it in my office I just send them outside the door and so once they're out there uh, and they're waiting and you come back in with the child and you say where's mama where'd she go where's mama and you say the word mama several times and you put it purposefully at the end of your phrase so it's the word that the child is hearing and remembering and and hopefully holding on to and so hopefully here she's going to start to look around as you're saying where's mama and then you say let's call her let's call her let's say mama and again you're teaching gesture use when you're modeling putting those little hands or even your big hands up beside your mouth and you're really showing them you know, this is how we initiate this. And I've seen lots of kids before they even start to say mama, they put their little hands up even before they can say the word because they've anticipated that and they've learned that. And that's kind of their sign or their gesture for calling. And so again, you model that mama, mama, mama. And then what do we want mom to do? We want her to jump out and be so excited and say, mama. And so usually when that happens, the baby toddler gets so excited and you all can clap and cheer. But we want mom to be really, really animated when she does that. She can't just kind of phone it in and just kind of show, you know, act like she's nonchalantly coming in the room. You know, did somebody call me here? That's not <laughs> going to be as effective as when she really gets into it and kind of jumps out and does the whole, Mama, Mama, yes, Mama. And you want her saying the word over and over and over because we always want toddlers, especially those with language delays, to hear what we want them to say. So you have her say that key word, Mama, over and over. And so you play that game several times. After you've celebrated, you do it again. 
have her hide in the exact same place. Don't don't really try to trick the child with a you know complicated game of hide and seek because that's not what we're doing. We're teaching the child here to just to call his mom and just to recognize that that's her name and recognize that he can say that too. And so it's a great little game. I always encourage parents not to play it with too many people at once. So once a child learns mama, then move on to dada, then move on to bubby or mama or you know whoever else they're trying to call that they want to teach a child to be able to say their name. It's a great, great way to do it. I've taught it to literally hundreds of families and uh, has that video has tons of hits on YouTube, so I know it's been successful. So we have to really help kids make that association. Not only do we want them to recognize who mama is, but we also want to do that with a teaching them to call somebody with that nice gesture and then finally to say that word that she's been waiting on so that they can really learn how to say mama. Now you can teach a child with pictures of mom and certainly with everybody with their phones. You know, we all have hundreds of pictures of ourselves on our phone. You know, mom can certainly use that too and practice that way and get it going that way. But I like that little mama game and I've had tons of success. And so I hope that you have as much success with that too. Now we want to move on to this next milestone, which is imitates play sounds and other consonant vowel combinations. Now we've already talked about this a lot in these previous milestones, and that's why we said all these milestones build on each other. So here we get to this milestone where we're really talking about where we're moving, helping a child move toward imitating real words, but we're not quite there yet. So let's talk about play sounds. What are play sounds? So play sounds are sound effects. So they're like the animal sounds that we talked about, like an uh, like saying moo for a cow or ba for a sheep or quack, quack, quack for a dog or even something simple like uh, a pant for a dog <sighs> or even a snort for a pig. <sighs> Not quite word-like, but they're sounds that mean something nonetheless. You could also have vehicle sounds, so things like your motor sound <sighs> or even things like the brake squealing or any kind of little sound that you want to do there, a choo-choo sound, woo-woo, anything like that would be a play sound. I also consider things like play sounds or those those uh, vocalizations that we make that aren't even, that we can't spell at all. So things like a purposeful fake cough where you cough <coughs> and the child tries to cough too or tries to even initiate that to get you involved in that little back and forth game or even things like blowing raspberries. Those are the things that we're talking about here. Now we've got that at 12 months, but the truth is in typical development, lots of babies are doing this around the nine or 10 month level. Now I don't want you to really pay attention to the sounds, although those are important. We wanna still talk about the key component here, the big thing here, which is what? imitation. Imitation is how all kids learn everything and especially how to talk. And so kids aren't going to learn how to say words on their own until they first imitated words or copied the words that they've heard you say. Here we're looking at it though before we get to that level. It starts actually with environmental play and uh, those kinds of sound effects things that we've already talked about. And even before that, nonverbal imitation is going to come first. And we've talked about that a lot with gestures 
gestures and uh, the body movements that we've already talked about. But the best way to really get imitation going is with lots of repetition in a very playful way. And, and let's just take the, the big part of this that we started where the indicator is, and then we'll talk about what to do if we're not seeing that. So uh, with, here with play sounds, so the first thing we want to do is really just model and then wait for the child to imitate. Now we help him if we can. We cheer for him. We do our expectant waiting. We set it up for him uh, to imitate. But again, uh, we can't necessarily make him do it. So when we've tried to get a child to do a lot of environmental, environmental noises and play sounds and a lot of that kind of early imitation and we're not seeing that, what do we do? We have to back up. Imitation is best taught along that continuum. And again, I've done tons of podcasts and I've written entire books, an entire book called Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers about the process of teaching late toddlers to imitate. I've done a whole podcast series about it with shows 422 through shows 420, show 429, where I walk you through that process. But here, we're just going to talk about it in the, in the way that we've already sort of started talking about it, but I want to be really, really purposeful. So right now, I want to put this up from our handout and talk about the specific steps that we teach. And here, we're on page two here, and we say specifically, if a child cannot imitate familiar words, we have to uh, be sure that he understands how to imitate. So we teach that imitation again along this whole uh, level system or hierarchy where we start with actions with objects, and that's nonverbal imitation in play with toys. Once a child is doing that, he usually bumps up to learning how to imitate with body movements, and then that turns into gestures. And so we do a lot of teaching children uh, just how to imitate things like clapping with, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, or other little social games where they learn how to, like patty cake, where they learn how to copy our movements, where they learn how to hold their hands up or hold our hands and row, row, row your boat. And then, uh, or they learn how to uncover their heads during peekaboo. So all those things that we talked about back in show 50 uh, with the receptive language social games that we want them playing, that would be that, that second rung of imitation. The third little level here, we're moving out here with the body, up here to the head and to the mouth. And so we start with nonverbal imitation things with our face. So even things like opening our eyes really big or opening our mouths here, uh, blowing kisses, clicking your tongue, smacking your lips, any little thing that we can do to direct attention here. Now the research is pretty clear that kids don't have to imitate these kinds of things to learn how to talk. But when we have late talkers that seem to have very little awareness and very little control and very little communicative intent and they don't vocalize to express themselves, it's certainly a step that's worth mentioning and worth pursuing for those children who are having those kinds of particular problems. The next level of imitation is the milestone that we're actually talking about here with play sounds and uh, exclamatory words, those next two little levels of imitation. And so we can see all the things that have to come first before a child gets here. And so when we have a child that's having lots of difficulty imitating at this level, we know that we've got to back up and we've got to teach them how to do these easier early things first. And so you've got that list right there. And so that just kind of shows you uh, where we are in the continuum. And so we have to all 
think about that constantly. If I have a kid who's up here at the 12-month level or we're working on these 12-month skills and he can't do it, oh no, that means something's missing. Something's missing that comes before this skill. So that's what I wanted to impress upon you about learning how and teaching uh, a child how to imitate play sounds and other consonant vowel combinations. Sometimes it's that we're just not purposeful enough about doing this. We have jumped so far ahead to familiar words that we're only working on words like ball and milk and more and cup and mama and dada which again are great and mama and dada are totally the kinds of words that we see coming first but at the same time children to learn how to imitate need those other kind of almost words first so words like uh uh-oh and wow and we and yay and oh boy and those kinds of expressions actually come first and so we've got to model that and we've got to pick up the things that we talked about when we were uh, talking about gestures where we I have to go back and pick up that affect piece we were using lots of emotion and exclamatory words are designed just to do that to present and to uh, convey that emotion when we don't have a large enough vocabulary to be able to express that yet so be sure that you're modeling those kinds of words and thinking about those kinds of words even things like animal sounds and vehicle noises plan those as part of your treatment for a child who's working at this developmental level even before you you get to those familiar words and you'll see a lot more success and the truth is a lot of times this is where we get kids anyway they're already saying this when they come to us in speech therapy they might say mama or dada and might have a couple of other animal sounds or a couple of other little words like uh-oh or uh you know shoot or something like that that they've acquired from someone else that they've they've imitated and so be sure that you're including that uh, in your treatment plans all right the next skill our next to the last milestone that we're going to talk about is even higher. Now we're all the way up to begins to imitate familiar words. And so even if a child is only using an approximation of the intended word, she is going to use the same sound sequences long enough that we want to be sure that we are recognizing that as a word. And most parents are great at this. And we know that when children first learn to talk, they're not going to get all the right sounds in the right places. And so sometimes, and I bet you've experienced this as a speech language pathologist or another early intervention therapist that a child is actually saying more than a parent is giving them credit for and so we want to reinforce that and we want to help parents really recognize those words word approximations especially if there's a speech sound component that they are using so many sound substitutions that you begin to figure that out because you just know how to listen to kids and and you've acquired that skill and you have to help parents begin to do that too. So let's talk about words that are noted in the earliest vocabularies of typically developing babies here at this 12-month level. And we'll put this up on the screen. These are words like social words such as bye-bye, night-night, or something like boo in the context of a social game. Uh, Also names of familiar people, objects, or nouns. So we think about this as, uh, like we said before, all the important people, mama, dada, if they see their grandparents or have brothers and sisters, those kinds of words. And then very familiar objects that are tied to their everyday routine. So their favorite toys, their favorite foods or drinks. Those are the kinds of early words that we hear, like baba for a child's bottle or like meh for milk or, or again, maybe their favorite food is... Um, 
uh, I don't know, chicken. And so maybe they something say something like tit or oh for yogurt. So any kind of little word approximation that you begin to recognize that that, that the child uses the same set of sounds over and over and over. Um, usually these first, and then also another kind of word are our requesting words. So words like please, more, again, up, all done, down, those kinds of words. Usually these first words are all t- tied to familiarity. How often do I hear this word? Is it something that my mom says to me or my uh, teacher at daycare says to me over and over and over and over and over again? So that's, again, where repetition plays such a big part. Children rarely say words that they haven't, that they haven't heard over and over and over at this phase unless... Unless it's really, really novel. And so novelty plays a part here. I've got a cute story to share with you. I just spent a week with our grandbaby named Henry, the week that he turned one. And uh, at the beginning of the week when I was there, I bought a balloon for him. And so... I would talk about the balloon. You know, here's your balloon. Let's see the balloon. I love the balloon. And he had seen balloons before, so it wasn't completely novel. But he started saying that word after about the first day. You know, boo, boo. And so, again, novelty can play a part with this, too. If it's something the child really, really likes and is really, really into, that might be a familiar word that they begin to imitate pretty quickly, too. All right, as we just reviewed when we were talking about learning how to imitate in uh for play sounds and other early consonant vowel combinations we uh, it's the same system when we're teaching children how to imitate familiar words so look at that system when we're all the way up here to words and look at that that's all the way up there at that uh you know after it comes after verbal routines there with familiar words that that's how that's how we have to teach children to imitate they learn in that order and again Average babies with typical development have worked their way through that process in these categories, and they're all the way up to familiar words by the time they're 12 months old. And and babies without a language delay, those who again are who are following that more typical trajectory, they are imitating words well by the time they're 15 to 18 months old. That's when parents say he's a little parrot. He just copies. He just you know echoes everything I say all day long, and that is just perfect. And so when we see a child who gets past this 12-month level who's not imitating yet by 15 or 16 months that should be really really strong and so again that baby needs to be screened if they're not really imitating so how do we increase the likelihood of imitation we listen carefully for those words and those attempts and we encourage those approximations so it has to be something meaningful that the child wants that he sees or that he desires Uh, we have to use a lot of modeling like we've already talked about so we say the single word often we reduce the complexity. We don't leave a word in the context of a really long sentence. Like, I can see you looking at this donut that mommy's holding right here, and all you have to do is tell me, and I'll give it to you too. What's the key word in there? It's donut. (laughs) We should be saying donut. You want a donut? Here's a donut. I'll give you a bite of the donut. And another thing we do that I've just modeled there is placement. So putting that keyword at the end of the phrase, particularly if you're not going to stick to a lot of single words. Another thing we can do that we've already talked about to increase the likelihood of imitation is to use the other things, like I said, we've already mentioned, our affect and our gestures. And so we... we 
model these words with, again, uh, more emphasis. We exaggerate them. We might even uh, elongate them so that we're saying cookie instead of cookie. You know, we increase the likelihood that that child will notice and will want to try to imitate the word too when we change our affect, when we change our prosody. Another important part of this is expectant waiting. And so that's where we give a child an opportunity to imitate. And I'm sure you've seen this as a therapist where you have a parent that's so eager and maybe even you as a chatty patty therapist, maybe you're just right there saying something like, cracker, tell me cracker. You got to tell me, say cracker. I want you to tell me so you can say, you know, and you're just not even shutting up so that the child has a chance to imitate that word. And so we teach parents to pause and do that expectant waiting so that we're saying something like cracker, cracker, you can tell me cracker. And again, you're looking at them with, you're leaning forward, you're using your positive body language, you make your face uh, fun to look at, you make your voice fun to listen to, and, and again, that anticipatory pause there, that pregnant pause that we give a chance, uh, give a child a chance to imitate and jump in and say that. And then lastly, we reward that. And when we reward children for something that's been hard for them, they're more likely to do it, just like adults are. And so the natural consequence is we give a child what he asked for. But sometimes we have to set it up to make it even more meaningful than that. So we have to do some physical contact rewards. So we have to do some high fives and some hugs and some tickles and some squeezes or some swing arounds or whatever that child likes. And so we, we uh, even, even our colleagues in ABA might do something like giving a child an edible or a little snack after they've done each little task that they want them to do. And so rewarding children, at, especially in speech therapy at this is really, really powerful. Don't get so caught up in uh, natural environments and in interrupting the flow, blah, 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 blah. When it's hard for a kid to talk, we've got to know that. And we've got to, again, make it worth their while. All right. Finally, we're here to the last milestone, which again is just a compilation or continuation of everything we've talked about until now. It's that a child will say one or two words spontaneously. Remember the big things that we've already talked about. A child usually doesn't say a word unless he's heard it a lot so we uh, and he's imitated it a lot usually uh, these words here in this first vocabulary are it's usually mama or dada and then something else that's extremely familiar I count noises here or little exclamatory words like uh oh or like I said a noise if it's an animal sound like moo if I can spell it it's a word to me and so I count it (laughs) and so we certainly want to uh, give kids credit for that even again a word that might be just an approximation even with some uh, deletions or substitutions with sounds there and so what do we do for a child when we're not seeing this well we've talked about all these strategies we keep doing the same thing with teaching imitation with modeling all the great things that we talked about but one thing that we can do here to increase the likelihood that a child will begin to use more words, even imitatively, is to offer choices. So here at this level, it's so important that we teach parents to give a child choices all day long. So we don't just give them a sippy cup. We walk through the whole process of what do you want to drink? You know, do you want milk or juice? And we have them pick one of those. And then we say, which cup? Which cup do you want it in? You know, Thomas or Elmo? And then we let them pick which one that is. And again, this is assuming that the child is already a pretty competent 
imitator or at least attempting to do that and then we you know we we provide even more choices for that oh where do you want your cup you want mommy to hold it up or put it down uh where do you want to sit do you want to sit uh at the table or in the den and so you give children all of these opportunities and so you've taken you know just with that little silly example that i came up with off the top of my head there's four or five choices in there and that's a big difference in uh then all day long if you emphasize that with a parent and they are providing those choices and that opportunity to imitate you know four times versus every one time before look at that look at how many imitations that you know a kid who might have said five words all morning now is imitating 20 different uh, occurrences where he's using a word approximation there so 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 important the more kids imitate the more likely they are to begin to use words spontaneously now another thing that we can do here is to uh, introduce a, a technique that we call withholding but at this point in a child's language development whether he's chronologically 12 months old or even older and a later talker or a toddler with a language delay or disorder uh, we want to use gentle withholding and by that I mean that we we withhold what he wants let's say that he wants let's pretend like this is a book a children's book and so we're saying you know you want book tell me book you say book and so we model that keyword and again with pauses and time for him to to imitate we wait in between there but we want to say our keyword or model it three to five times so that we give him that opportunity to repeat that word and then what do we do if he still doesn't say it in that three to five times we give it to him anyway and that's the gentle part of this we don't withhold it like you can't have your cup unless you say cup we never want to do that we want to still give it to them because why we want them to try we want to keep them with us we want to keep that desire and that motivation building we don't want to destroy that relationship there and so that's what we do with gentle withholding here and that is really really effective so let's talk about something that I bet that you've already noticed if you're a therapist this milestone list that we've reviewed here with this 12 month skills and again let's go ahead and put that up on the screen again it looks just like our early goal list for late talkers right and we talked about this at the beginning of the show but I want to be sure that I mention it now this is how we work on on these skills we we pair these together as our first little goals we use the same strategies here for a child who's 12 months who would be acquiring uh, these words in a typical way we use the same kinds of strategies and the same kinds of uh, hierarchy there when we're teaching imitation as we would with a child who's uh, again with that language delay and so these are the, the milestones just help us know how to focus our efforts. And again, whether that's in therapy or whether it's a mom or a dad at home. So these are going to be the specific goals that we work on first. And so always with our components of our early speech therapy plans for expressive language delays, we're going to be looking at these big things. So here's our summary for today. We're going to increase the variety of vocalizations. We'll establish communicative intent. We're going to teach gestures. We're going to work through that imitation hierarchy. We're going to target familiar words words first and then we're going to encourage spontaneous words through choices and that is again is is just such a nice summary of the things that we do when we're beginning to work on expressive language with so many of our little friends who are toddlers and still not talking all right so to wrap up this show I want to share some resources for teaching these skills and I mentioned this uh, along the way but teach me to talk the therapy manual is the 
book where I've recapped all these milestones from right under the 12-month level all the way through the 48-month level. Much of the information from today's show was from that book, and so you'll find even more ideas there. So things that we had to kind of rush through here, you'll get the written version there in the book. If you are a speech-language pathologist, you need this book. Therapists tell me it's the one resource that they use every single day uh, when they're working with children on their early intervention caseload, so I hope that you'll check that out. I've also got some podcast series that'll help you, and again, I've included those here on the second page of our handout, as well as uh, below the post here on YouTube. So the show's about pointing, gestures, and imitation. Please uh, take the time to listen to those, because those will walk you through things we just had to really hurriedly cover today. I also want to redirect you uh, to uh, pre-linguistic skills, and so the things that have to happen before kids talk. We haven't talked a lot about that in the context today as far as me saying this is a pre-linguistic skill, but so much of the things that we talked about are also covered in my manual, Let's Talk About Talking. And these are the 11 skills that all toddlers must master uh, to learn how to talk, whether they're talking on time or where, whether, again, there's some kind of speech-language delay. The links are below. All right, that's all for today. Coming up next, we're going to have our next two shows in this podcast series, so 452, where we'll look at receptive language skills in toddlers 12 to 18 months, and then the expressive counterpart of that with uh, show 453, which would be the expressive language milestones. There's such nice overlap. And again, I know you'll notice that between 450 and 451. We want children to understand things receptively, and then we want them to say them expressively. And so um, I hope that throughout this whole series that we can emphasize that so that you understand how connected those receptive and expressive language uh, skills really are. All right, that's it. That's really it for today. That's all. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and we so appreciate you being here for our podcast from Teach Me to Talk.